Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Prosecco and Ponies with Tony. I don't know if you know this about me at all, probably not, because nobody is here to see it, but every time I go to record a podcast, (laughs) I always tap the microphone and I say, is this thing on? (laughs) And then I laugh to myself for like five minutes. So in case you're wondering what I do up here when I'm recording, uh, that's that's one of the things. But anyways, I, <laughs> moving on. Welcome to another episode of Prosecco and Ponies with Tony, where it's like someone took your cool drunk auntie and then told her she had to stay home for eight months and give her a fucking microphone. Anyway, you know that saying, revenge is a dish best served cold? Well, apparently this expression originated in the 1800s. And the idea behind it is that revenge is more satisfying and beautiful when you have had time to prepare vengeance that is well-planned or unexpected. I mean, who doesn't love a good revenge story, right? Revenge is one of those weird things that can truly inspire passionate feelings and really diabolical plans, which are my favorite. Anyway, on today's episode, I wanted to keep it short and sweet because I knew I needed to get an episode out. I've gotten some uh, pretty testy messages from people. Cyan, I'm looking at you. Um, And (laughs) I really appreciate that anybody even cares about listening to these. Um, But I wanted to keep it short and sweet because I wanted to get an episode out. But I really wanted to talk about some of my favorite historical revenge stories because you know I love my history. And honestly... It's been a bit of a shit week, if not a shit year. And I just want to think about how other people are getting revenge because sometimes, and I know I'm not supposed to say this because it's not putting out good to the universe and blah, 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 but... Sometimes karma just isn't fast enough for dickheads to get what's coming to them, you know? And then talking about revenge sometimes just makes me feel better. I don't know why. Sort of like how people like to watch like serial killer documentaries. Well, me, I'm I'm that people, but I'm just in that kind of mood. So anyway, here are some Cole's Notes short versions of some of my favorite revenge stories. The last one, though, is my story, and I definitely put it in an earlier podcast, but it just fit in with this one too well, so I know I'm going to repeat myself a bit, but you know what? This is my podcast, and it's 2020, and I can just do whatever I want because who's going to stop me, right? So I'll leave it till the end, though, so you can jam out early if you want to. So to start us off, there's Peter I of Portugal. This one is really good. Um, His dad was King Afonso IV, and he had Peter's love, Inez, murdered. Afonso died not long after this, so Peter obviously couldn't kill off his dad. So he became the king, and he was able to find out who the assassins were that were hired to murder his wife. And when he found out, he actually ripped their hearts out with his bare hands in revenge for what they had done to his heart. Um, and then there's Maria Octia Brishkaya. Octia Brishkaya. I don't know how to pronounce that properly. It's like she's super Russian. Maria Octia Brishkaya. <laughs> so bad. Anyways, Maria was married to an army officer named Ilya. Who was fighting against the Nazis in Kiev in World War II? He was killed in a battle, and so Maria, who was distraught, obviously sold every single thing that she owned, every worldly possession she had, she sold to buy a T 34 tank, and she named her fucking tank. She called it the Fighting Girlfriend. And she wanted to kill Nazis. And 
Just to be sure that she could kill as many as possible on her own, Maria actually took a chance and wrote to Joseph Stalin and said, My husband was killed in action defending the motherland. I want revenge on the fascist dogs for his death and for the death of Soviet people tortured by the fascist barbarians. And Stalin, for whatever reason, probably because he loved the propaganda of this, he agreed to this and he allowed Maria to go into five months of soldier and tank training, which is very unheard of. Um, so in October of 1943, Maria finally got the opportunity to drive her tank, the fighting girlfriend, into battle and crush a bunch of Germans. Like literally, she drove her tank over a bunch of Nazis. And not long after her first battle, she wrote a letter to her sister and said, I've had my baptism by fire. I beat the bastards. Sometimes I'm so angry I can't even breathe. I have been there, girl. Probably not like because Nazis murdered my husband, but just for other things. Anyway, so Maria actually unfortunately died fighting the Nazis a few months later in January of 1944 because she got out of her tank mid-battle to do repairs and took shrapnel to the head. And unfortunately, she was in a coma for a little while and then died from her injuries. But she was posthumously named as a hero of the Soviet Union, which was basically the Soviet equivalent of the Medal of Honor. Then, ooh, another good one, Julius Caesar. He was kidnapped by pirates when he was sailing on the sea, and he was 25 at the time and at first, so he still, like, let me back that up for a second. He was still very wealthy, he was still very powerful, but he was young. And so at first, they asked for 20 pieces of silver as a ransom, but Caesar was like, what the fuck, bro? Do you have any idea who I am? This is an insult. I'm a very important man. So he demanded that they increase his ransom to 50 pieces of silver. And he also promised that because he was so insulted by their lack of demanding a proper ransom for him, that he would come back and crucify them. And obviously, because he was a very important man, the ransom was paid and Julius was freed. And after being let go, he got home, gathered up a bunch of his army and went back to the island where the pirates had set up camp. And once he got there, him and his army literally cut everyone's throats and then crucified them. So I'm assuming he's got his silver back. Then, ooh, she's a good one. There's Boudicca. And Boudicca was the Celtic queen of the Iceni tribe in what's now sort of modern day Britain. Um, her husband was an independent ally of Rome, and he had an agreement with Rome that when he died, his estate, his name was Prostagus, uh, he had an agreement that his estate would be divided up between all of his daughters and the Roman emperor Nero. However, when he died, Rome obviously was like, yeah, fuck that. Like, what's he going to do about it? And his lands were taken by Rome and the Iceni lost their status as allies and all of their land. Now, his wife, Boudicca, she was a total badass. She objected to this, obviously, and was publicly flogged in front of her people and her two daughters were raped in front of everybody and their lands were taken from them. This clearly did not sit well with Boudicca and she led a huge revolt against Rome which was unheard of at that time, and it left three huge, huge Roman cities in complete ruins and over 80,000 Roman citizens dead. And she ended up dying in battle. The legend is that she poisoned herself to avoid capture, but I think she made her point. Um, now, probably my favorite historical revenge story is Olga of Kiev. Oh my god, Olga. 
So Olga was born sometime around 900 AD in what is now Russia. So she was married to the Prince of Kiev, whose name was Igor, and together they had a son. In the year 945, Igor goes to a place run by his opposition at the time who were called the Drevlians. And the Drevlians were basically his angry neighbors that were sick of his shit because he kept trying to take over their area and boss them around and make them pay tributes to him and his people, which is essentially like their version of taxes. But anyway, when he was on his way to them for a tribute to demand money and honey and furs from them, a group of Drevlians overwhelmed his party and captured him, and holy shit, they definitely did not just let him go on about his business. Rose? Rosishka? Rosamund? Hi, that's very loud. Sorry, my dog is snoring in the background. Anyway, where was I? Okay, so uh, anyway, he was captured by Drevlians. Igor was captured by Drevlians. And there was a Byzantine writer at the time named Leo the Deacon, who was basically like a CNN reporter for that time. And he documented that the Drevlians bent down two big birch trees and tied them to the prince's feet and his legs. And then they let them go. So when they let the trees straighten up, it basically tore him completely in half. So now Olga is a widow and their son is still a minor. He was only about three at the time. So she inherits Igor's power and definitely she does not waste it. Now the Drevlians think, okay, we got her husband. So now let's just join her with us because basically she's a weak, sad woman and probably needs protection, right? So they send 20 guys on horses to Olga. They send them the next day to tell her, hey, uh, sorry, like we killed your husband. He was shit, but fuck that guy. Come marry our guy. His name is Prince Maul. Now Olga, who clearly was the ultimate queen of the poker face, is devastated, but she tells them, oh my, this is quite nice. Thank you so much for getting rid of that prick. I will absolutely consider this wonderful offer. Why don't you come back tomorrow and the people here will do a ceremony in your honor? And they're like, wow, okay, that was way easier than we thought. Women are so stupid with their tiny brains. And so they leave so that they can come back the next day. Now, after these 20 clueless dudes leave Olga's court, she has her people dig a huge pit. The next day comes, these 20 guys come back on their horses, and she's like, oh my, let me show you this cool boat ceremony our people do. And they're like, whoa, okay, we get a ceremony? So they all head out towards the water. Once they get out there, there's a whole small army of Olgas, and they attack these 20 Drevlians and throw them into the pit that they dug the night before. And Olga stands over them, probably saying some pretty harsh shit as her people bury them alive. But here's the thing. Olga is not satisfied with that because she knows there was way more of them responsible for her husband's death. So cool as a cucumber, she sends a letter to the Drevlians with her people and sends them this like whole big messenger party and asks them to please send more men to prove that they're really serious about this whole marry your husband's killer and join the tribes thing. So basically, she tells them, like, okay, we'll send more men here if you're really serious. So they're like, okay, God, this lady's an idiot. So a bunch of new arrivals come a few days later to see Olga. And once they get there, she offers them all these gracious hostess things, right? She's a wonderful lady hostess, loves throwing parties. So she locks them in a bathhouse and sets the bathhouse on fire. So she burns up all of the men that just had shown up to her place. So Guess what, though? Olga 
is still not fucking done. So she sends another letter to the Drevlians, who now are missing like 60 of their people. And she says, hey, um, all your boys are here partying. Make as much mead as you possibly can because your new queen, Olga, is coming for a visit and I want it to look good. And I want to pretend that we're throwing a funeral for my dead husband and then our tribes can join as one big tribe and move on and be one big happy family. And they're like, holy shit. So they set to work making all this mead and getting ready for this huge party and the arrival of their fancy queen. So Olga makes her way to the Drevlian territories and along the way she's able to stop at her husband's tomb where historians say she wept for one minute before she picked herself up and remembered who the fuck she was and what she came to do. And basically she was like, I came here to see my husband and burn these motherfuckers to the ground and I'm all out of husbands to see. So she gets to the Drevlian court and this huge party starts and everyone is completely shit-faced. Well, not everyone. Olga and her soldiers are pretending and they're playing along, but really they're staying pretty coherent because they have a plan. And once all of the Drevlians are hammered, they're all partying into the wee hours of the night, Olga raises up and unleashes her rage and orders her soldiers to attack. And between Olga and her soldiers, they kill 5,000 Drevlians in one night. Now, you'd think that it ended here, but it certainly did not. That's why this one is my favorite, because she just keeps going. So there are still Drevlians left, and this simply would not do for Olga. So she gets her squad, she goes home to get more weapons and more soldiers, and then she comes back before the blood has even dried. Now, the Drevlian territories that are left, basically, they have no real leader because anyone, all the who's who of all these people, anyone super important would have been at the murder party. So she comes back and she says, oh my God, you guys, I am so sorry. I murdered all your leaders and all your friends, but it had to be done. You understand. And I feel much better now. Let's move on, shall we? And these poor people... All these like poor farmers and peasants, they've lost their families and their friends and they have no leaders left. So they're just floundering around and they're like, okay, please tell us what you want. And they even try to pay her with fur and honey. And she says, okay, my babies, okay, keep all your stuff. Just give me like three pigeons and three sparrows from each of your houses. And they're like, okay, sure. Yeah, here's our house birds, Olga. And so they give all these birds to Olga, who's now taken up residence in the Drevlian palace, basically. And she has all of her soldiers attach a thread holding a piece of sulfur and a small piece of cloth to each pigeon and sparrow. And after they do this, they wait until the middle of the night. God knows how long this must have taken. But they light all of the sulfur and these little cloths on fire and let the birds go. And of course, what happens, these poor little winged babies fly back to their homes and their nests because they're fucking on fire and they're scared. These little flaming birds fly back to everyone's houses. And obviously back then, everything was made of hay and wood. And so these little birds burned down every single home. And whoever didn't die in a fiery hut was murdered by Olga's soldiers when they were trying to run away or taken captive to be used as slaves. So I guess I'd say Olga pretty much wins that revenge game. I don't think that one can be beat. Like she burnt down an entire like people, really. Anyway, sorry, the last story is one that I've told already, but it fits in too well with this episode and I have a ton of new listeners, so I'm just going to tell it again. So if you've already heard this story, please feel free to move on to greener pastures now. 
get yourself a drink, go watch some like Queen's Gambit or something. I don't know, wear a mask, wash your hands, I don't fucking know. Anyway, I just want to start off by saying I'm not super proud of how I handled this situation. I probably could have done, like spiritually, I probably could have done a better job, but what's done is done. And so this pretty much is only my my personal story of revenge. Um, In general, I don't really like confrontation. I'm not a person that just wants to start arguments over things. But a few years ago, quite a few years ago, I was in a really popular fast food restaurant with some friends and I happened to see a girl that I knew from way back in elementary school. And I recognized her right away because it honestly looked like she hadn't aged at all. She just basically got taller. Back in the day when I saw her, I was still kind of coming out of my goth phase. So I had like a really pale face and dark hair, lots of black eyeliner. And I mostly only wore like Marilyn Manson and metal t-shirts, which I kind of still do now, actually, now that I think about it. But I saw this girl and I, you know, black hair, lots of eyeliner, white face. And I was like, oh, my God. Hey, blah, blah, blah. How are you? We went to elementary school together. It's Brittany. And I'm looking at her like, you must remember me. Now, in elementary school, this girl was super popular, probably one of the most popular girls. And she was one of those blonde, skinny girls that went to Disney every year with her happy, wholesome Christian family and always had the newest clothes and cool toys and blah, blah, blah. And I obviously was not that kid and I was not part of that group. And she was never nice to me, even when we were little. And I remember once that maybe it was like grade three or four, probably grade four, I got one of those pity invites to her birthday party and it was horrible because her and her other popular friends made fun of me the whole time and I just remember crying in her bathroom until it was time to go home. So anyway, now I'm older, whatever, we're grown up, I see this girl and I'm willing to let that shit go because I'm an adult. So again, I'm like, hey, like we went to school together and I shit you not. It was that classic movie moment where a group of like blonde cheerleaders visibly sneer at the loser trying to talk to them. And she looks me up and down with her friends all sort of like curled around her and her lip is curled up in almost like an actual snarl. And she snaps, I never went to school with anyone that looked like you. And then all of her friends started to giggle and laugh and call me like a freak and just say really shitty things. And so now I'm like standing there with like red, hot, like embarrassed cheeks. And you know that sick feeling that you like get in your stomach when people are just like being so awful to you. And I'm like, okay, this bitch has not changed one bit. Like what an asshole. And then this is the only time I've ever done anything like this. But do you remember when you used to be able to get free refills on drinks at fast food places? Like Let's say, for example, you got a large Coke at McDonald's and then they would refill it for you. Maybe they still do that. I have no idea. But I went to the counter and I asked to get my giant Coke refilled all the way up to the top. And I was seething because I was just like so humiliated and I felt small and like insignificant. And I just felt all of those like emotions from my childhood come over of being like picked on and just, you know, having this girl be so shitty to me for no reason. So on the way out, oh my God, my cheeks are seriously hot just like thinking about this. But on the way out, she was sitting with her asshole back to the door and I fucking took the lid off and I walked up behind her and I dumped the entire full, huge cup of Coke on her head. 
And then I put the cup upside down on the top of her head and I fucking ran. So I heard shrieking and yelling as I got into the car and her and her friends were all crying and they burst through the door to yell at me while we drove away through the parking lot. And I actually heard later from some friends that were still in the place that all the girls were huddled together crying and she was covered in coke and they were like touching her hair and everybody was crying and they asked the people at the restaurant to call 911 for some reason. I'm not sure how an ambulance would have helped her, but whatever. Anyway, I still think about that, but um, that does it <laughs> for this episode. And surprisingly, talking about these revenge stories, I feel a little bit better. So if you have any revenge stories or any stories at all that you would like to share with me, you can find me at Prosecco and Ponies on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can email me your stories or DM me your stories. But my email is ProseccoWithPony at gmail.com. That is it, my friends. Thank you for listening. <sighs> Stay hydrated. 